Hey everyone, I just wanted to take a quick minute to let you know that we've launched our Patreon site and that you can now become a supporter of the show. The awards in there include artist features on our website and shoutouts on the show, as well as open invitations to join fellow patrons in our roundtable discussion episodes. So if you think you might be interested, please take a look at the link in the description or just go to patreon.com slash at percussion, so slash A-T percussion. Okay, thanks for listening. Hi, everyone. Welcome to your At Percussion episode 258. Today is October 18th. My name is Ben Charles, and with me always are Carly Vigna. Hey, Ben. Hey there, Carly. Casey Cangelosi. Hey, buddy. How's that xylophone piccolo action going? Oh, it's going great. Casey's got this super cool piece called Caprice for xylophone and piccolo that I'm I'm working on right now. I'm amazed uh, it's not more irritating, like piccolo <laughs> and xylophone. It's, it's really fun. There's a there's a lot of these little like little octave jumps. It's it's really quirky and fun. I was working on that late last night. So thanks good, for the cool good. piece, Casey. Well, thanks, buddy. And yeah, of course. And <laughs> Ksenia Kamunovich rolling her eyes at us. Welcome, Ksenia. <laughs> Hello, boys. What's Why are you up? so mean to me, Ksenia? <laughs> <laughs> it amps up the ratings. <laughs> Come on. You told me to. <laughs> and if you are listening to this episode on the day it is released, uh, it is November 19th. And Ksenia is going to tell us what happened in history on November 19th. So nothing uh, serious in classical music besides this most important thing in your life, I'm sure, Ben, which is that in 1991, Paul McCartney's first classical piece, Liverpool Oratorio, was performed in America for the first time at New York's Carnegie Hall. I thought you were going to say in 1991, the Bartok Sonata was premiered. Oh, no, no. Come on. Paul McCartney's way more important. Why is that classical? Just because because it's called Oratorio? Well, it, it is sort of his first uh, job at classical music, which uh, did go well with uh, the regular folks, not so well with us stuck-up folks, um, but it's it's out there. You can check it out. It's on YouTube and everywhere else, so you can uh, go and see it. I'm not quite sure why it's called an oratorio, because it's supposedly about his life, but um, who knows? Maybe he is, a, well, he is a religious figure by now, so maybe that's okay. Basically. Um, <laughs> you guys know about this? I never even heard that he wrote an oratorio. Ben must I, have I, I knew about it. I've seen a recording of it. I remember seeing a recording of it in Barnes and Noble when I was in high school, but I've actually, I've never heard it. I should give it a listen sometime. It's interesting. It's, it's, uh, it's interesting. It's easy listening for sure. Uh, but very interesting, uh, lengthy work. Good job, Paul McCartney. Um, all right, so that's one. In 1995, the latest uh, James Bond movie at the time was GoldenEye. It opened in the US and featured the title song by Tina Turner, GoldenEye, and that's probably the best Bond song ever. Live um, and Let Die, Paul McCartney, come on. <laughs> uh, no, no, oh. I mean, I did love Chris Cornell's uh, version, but uh, no, I didn't. I didn't. Enjoy, I don't know. I mean, Billie Eilish's song is cool, but you know, maybe, maybe not so much. Um, what is Carly writing in the chat? <laughs> Just making fun of Ben that he's showing his age if he says, "I went to Barnes and Noble in high school." And look at CDs. <laughs> it's 
so cute. <laughs> uh, well, and anyway, uh, 2002, Michael Jackson. Okay, this is not music related at all, but you know, it was in on one of those music history websites that Casey told us we should browse through when we do this type of homework. But Michael Jackson on this day in 2002 shocked onlookers in Berlin after appearing to dangle his baby, Prince Michael II, from a fifth floor hotel balcony. So getting creepier. And then uh, the greatest achievement of all music uh, was in, hmm, let's say that was 2012. I forgot to write down the, the year. But People Magazine named Adam Levine Sexiest Man Alive, making him the first musician to earn the title in the feature's 28-year history. So there you go. We finally got a sexy person, which is very important. I'm hereby naming James Levine the least sexiest person ever to exist. True. True. Amen oh. for that. Oof. Yeah, you know, you don't have to report on everything these websites tell you. It's just like, here, here's a friendly, helpful, some helpful links. <laughs> you don't have hey, to report on that, whatever. Well, I, I it. think it's really important. All of those were really important. And also, uh -huh. Carly will be lovely to edit all of this junk out and just leave the Paul McCartney part in. <laughs> so it's fine. You should. No, it's it's staying. <laughs> there's a birthday in the chat you should report on. Well, I'm, I'm about to, Casey. Oh, okay. So. <laughs> Geez, getting ahead of me. So I'd like to welcome our guest for today, Sarah Rimkis, who, if you're listening to this on November 19th, it is Sarah's birthday. So happy birthday, Sarah. Yay. Thank you. So, Thank you for having me. Amazing. Of course. So Sarah is an award-winning American composer of choral, vocal, and chamber works. Her music draws on influences as diverse as Ars Antiqua to Balkan folk music and has been performed by the Ligeti Quartet, the Esoterics, and the Red Note Ensemble. She completed her studies at the University of South Carolina, excuse me, Southern California and the University of Aberdeen and has been an internationally recognized through awards, including the ASCAP Morton Gould Award and ASCAP Foundation Leonard Bernstein Award. And she currently teaches at Michigan Technological University. So welcome, Sarah. Thank you. Excited to be here. Yeah, that's definitely University of Southern California. Yeah. <laughs> I had in my notes, I just want to say South Carolina for some reason. Um, so I just wanted to, to mention that the way that I was introduced to Sarah's music uh, is that I've tried this year a new thing of uh, trying to be better about representing the diversity of composers, especially living modern composers. So for my percussion ensemble concert, 50% of my the works on my concert are, are by either female identifying or uh, people of composers of color. Um, and uh, it's, I think, a very important thing that we do now. If you look at my percussion studio, it's actually 50% female. And so I wanted to represent that diversity. And the Percussive Arts Society has some wonderful databases available through their diversity committee of, of works by uh, diverse composers. And I came across Sarah's uh, work, Blackbird, in that. And I'm a huge Beatles fan. So I was like, oh, cool. Someone did an arrangement of Paul McCartney. Um, but then it wasn't, <laughs> but I listened to it and I like the piece anyway. So uh, we're doing Sarah's piece, Blackbird. So Sarah, could you actually uh, start out by telling us a bit about this work, Blackbird, that I came across? Sure, yes, uh, it, was, it was quite funny. Um, I actually, I'm from a small town near Seattle called Bainbridge Island, Washington. And uh, just the place to be on Bainbridge Island, Washington is Blackbird Bakery. Uh, and I happened to be a little bit homesick when I was writing the piece. Uh, so I just ended up naming it Blackbird. Um, also, uh, I, with the piece, um, 
I wanted to write something that would be a little bit different for our percussion ensemble at the University of Aberdeen. Uh, we had uh, and still have an excellent studio of percussionists there and they play a lot of really amazing repertoire. Uh, but I'm, I'm not like the most confident composer for percussion, I would say. And I wanted to write something that was maybe a little bit more melodic um, because I felt like so many other composers that they had already programmed had the more groove-based music uh, so well covered. So I wanted to do something that would let them show their more melodic, sensitive side, I suppose. So I came up with this piece uh, that basically arranged a tune, um, but I made use of the two sides of the marimba and vibraphone separately. So I had four players um, on two instruments that were kind of using the black keys and the white keys separately. So I ended up with some fun uh, polyharmonic relationships there. And that, that was kind of how I, that was how I went about the piece. Um, it was commissioned by uh, Professor Derek Ogston and Margaret Carlaw, uh, who are great supporters of the University of Aberdeen Music Department. Um, so I, I hope they enjoyed it. And it was, it was first performed back in 2018, which was right about the time that I was finishing up my PhD. Uh, so very exciting that the piece is getting a stateside outing. <laughs> So uh, un unfortunately, with with COVID stuff now, we're actually not sharing instruments, which I think is probably yeah, that, that, <laughs> that makes sense. Yeah, it works, you know, regardless. Uh, but I just I wanted to add it's it's funny you you kind of said like uh, like if you're not familiar Sarah does a lot of, of choral choral work and you're kind of like ah, I'm not not so sure about percussion and I, I'm really sorry that I'm going to make a, a terrible analogy here but I'm going to go for it uh, it reminds me of when when the Food Network approached Rachel Ray about starting a, a cooking show uh, she told them like I, I'm not a chef like I'm I like you're cooking channel is all like wine and I'm beer. It was like, I, I don't even know how to cut an onion properly. And they said, that's what we like about you. That's why we want you. And when I came across this piece, I was like, oh, it's it's not drummy. It's not groovy. It's like a lyrical piece. And I was like, that's what I like about the piece. So I think that you're, what you're almost chalking up to be a, a shortcoming, so to speak, is like a strength in your composition. So I've enjoyed it quite a bit. That's good. That, I, that's what I was hoping for. I figured that if it was going to be instruments that I'm maybe less comfortable with uh, than some others, I might as well keep it a little bit more in my comfort zone in some other ways. So I'm, I'm glad to hear that, that 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 came across and that worked out. And I love watching Food Network, so I'm not offended by that analogy in the slightest. <laughs> I'm offended, Ben. I'm sorry, Casey. Offended. Hey, hey, speaking of getting confident on percussion, you were kind enough to say you're not the most confident on percussion in your writing. How, how do you recommend for people, like, are there some go-to pieces you like to tell composers if they say, what are some good examples of percussion writing? Are there, do you have any favorites or go-tos that you, I don't know, maybe were inspired by or you recommend for other people? I, I remember uh, studying uh, Varese's music quite a bit in mm -hmm. undergrad. Um, and also, I mean, you've mentioned uh, my former TA from USC, Eric, Eric Ginevan, um, and some of the repertoire that he and his percussion quartet performed back when, back when he was still in LA that gave me some perspective on percussion. Mm -hmm. um, also, um, there's actually quite a bit of choir and percussion repertoire 
that uh, is is quite popular these days. So that's that's made me a little bit more comfortable with it, I suppose. Um, I, I know pieces like uh, David Lang's Little Match Girl Fashion. Uh, there, uh -huh. there are a lot of different ways to use percussion. So um, I don't know. Uh, there, there are all kinds of all kinds of things out there. Uh, cool. Oh, that's great. Drawing a blank on specifics at the moment because it's been a while. But... Cool. No, that's great. Um, one of our listeners, Ante Kolesik, uh, submitted a question through our Instagram uh, page, and he said, what are the biggest challenges of writing for percussion? And maybe you would like to elaborate so you don't have to name drop anything, but just tell us what's, what's so tricky when you're a gifted per composer and then you approach this series of instruments that are just insane. I think it is the diversity of instruments uh, that I don't I don't necessarily feel like I, I know all of them as well as an actual performer might. So there's there's that bit of, of hesitation. But of course, uh, I write for a lot of instruments that I don't play for. So it's, it's just a question of practice. Um, I don't play string instruments either. But I love writing for strings. But that's that's something that I've had a lot of practice at. So I, I think it's just a question of doing it uh, re repeatedly like anything and then you get better at it. Um, also, there is the question of um, what do you do when there's, when there's no pitch involved? Um, I, I tend to focus a lot on harmony when I write and especially in terms of planning my music. So when working with instruments that aren't necessarily pitched all the time, that can force me to reconceive in how I plan out a work. Um, but of course, that's not necessarily, a, that's not a bad thing. Of course, it, it can be good to be pushed out of your comfort zone. So those are some of the challenges, but of course, as always, there are also some of the opportunities. Yeah, it's not necessarily bad, just different, I suppose. Mm -hmm. Sarah, do you have favorite or maybe less favorite instruments, percussion instruments to write for? Uh, I mean, pitched percussion instruments are always fun. I've written for vibraphone probably more often than any other percussion instrument. Um, and it can, I, I like vibraphone for its ability to blend with other instruments, but still has the ability to cut through a texture in a way that a marimba doesn't. And of course it can sustain in a way that a marimba doesn't. So I'm, I'm very attracted to vibraphone for that reason. Um, I've also used, um, in my larger piece for choir and percussion, I used that sort of drum and sleigh bells combination quite a bit. And, and that can be a really nice uh, sound for, um, again, cutting through the textures of other instruments. So I suppose those are some of my favorite percussion instruments. Nice. Well, you know, what you say about the vibraphone, I think vibraphone is probably the closest to the human voice of the instruments that we have, with the sustain especially and, and something about the tone. But, mm -hmm. Yeah, nice. But what about the ass's jaw, Carly? That's like an actual jaw. <laughs> Do you make sounds like that with your voice? <laughs> I mean, no, but it's an actual jawbone. I mean, that's far closer to an actual voice. That's exactly how Casey sounds in my head all the time. Uh -huh. <laughs> that sound we always hear in the background. Really, it's a really obnoxious instrument. Casey's still waiting for the duo for piccolo and ass's jaw. And ass's jaw. <laughs> but uh, 
Sarah, to get back to your music for a minute, <laughs> your your bio mentions that that you have influences from Balkan and Scandinavian folk music. And when I whenever I hear folk music, I like automatically my mind just goes to Bartok and his uh, efforts in early musicology and and folk music. And he obviously transcribed quite a bit of uh, folk music. And so we had a question from Kenneth Stewart that says, "Do you transcribe folk music?" Uh, and just to further elaborate on that, can you tell us how folk music has influenced your composition? Um, I, I don't, I wouldn't say that I transcribe folk music personally, you know, luckily many, many musicologists have come before me and between their work and the power of uh, the internet and information access, uh, we have quite a bit of access to folk music from around the world that has already been recorded and already been transcribed in a lot of instances. Um, of course, I do arrange folk music sometimes for, uh, uh, for choirs. Um, I've arranged uh, several traditional American, American folk tunes. Um, I've also arranged a lot of shape note music, which occupies a bit of an interesting place in between folk music and what we might consider concert music because it is notated. Um, so those kinds of, uh, I, I have done a ranging of those kinds of things. <clears throat> Pardon me. Um, in terms of my influences from folk music, um, I've certainly been influenced by shape note music a lot in the way it uses harmony and uh, how it uh, it tends to revolve around open fifths as opposed to triads and the way that it negotiates those uh, cadences and those relationships has been very influential on how I deal with um, uh, more simple or tonal chord progressions. Um, I've also been very influenced by Bulgarian folk singing in particular. And if, you, if you're familiar with this music, you know that it revolves a lot around uh, really intense vocal clusters and dissonances that are really, really fun to sing. Uh, and it takes advantage of a, a lot of really close intervals and the, the differences between whole steps and half steps. And these are certainly things that I've taken on board in my work quite a bit. Um, those, those are just two of, of many things I've sort of explored. Um, but yeah, those have been quite influential on me. Yeah, go ahead, Ben. You know, I, I just had a question. Uh, actually, three of us, our teacher is Bulgarian. <laughs> and so, uh, and I know Bulgarian folk music also has a, a lot of really interesting meter in it. Have you exper experimented with that at all? Yeah, definitely. Um, a lot of my instrumental works in particular, I'll, I'll, I'll have a lot more leeway to experiment with the meter than I might have in a, in a choir piece. Um, just because it, tend, it tends to work a little bit better, at least for, for, Western, for Western singers, uh, the irregular meters might be a little bit more challenging. So I've, I've done a lot of that in my um, instrumental music. Um, I'm using some of those, uh, you know, seven, eight, and nine, eight, and five, four. Um, certainly that's, a, I love doing that when I can, I would say. You, you mentioned shape note music. And in like the the attic of my brain, that's some kind of choir tradition thing, and it's a, a notation that's um, we've more or less moved on from. Can you can you describe I mean, for some of our listeners just what that is quickly, but also maybe what what you what you find really valuable about it, and maybe 
what there is still uh, left to use there. Uh, shape note music is a singing tradition that evolved out of singing schools in the early United States, particularly in New England. Um, it also it migrated down to the southern, uh, southeastern United States in particular. And this is a tradition of choral singing that it, it was practiced in churches, but not necessarily in church services. Um, it revolves around a body of repertoire that is specific to, to shape note singing or sacred harp music. It, the sacred harp is their main uh, book of music that they use. And basically the notes are, are readable as we would read any other, um, any other sheet music, but the notes are in different shapes and they're different shapes based on what scale degree the note is within the particular key. Um, and the shapes are just another, they're just another mnemonic device to help people learn to read music faster. So if you don't have so much experience with reading music, it's just another way to help you learn. Um, they also use solfege syllables, again, again, in a way that might sound familiar to us that have learned singing solfege in a, a musicianship, musicianship class. Uh, but they only use four syllables instead of seven. So it's, it's just, a, um, it's, a, it's music notation very, very similar to ours, but with just a couple of extra mnemonic devices. And what it's known for is the particular singing style that singers tend to use when singing this music, which is really nasal and forward and intense uh, and quite, quite stunning in its own way. But also the music itself uh, has some distinctive qualities to it because of the diversity of backgrounds of the people who wrote these tunes, which are kind of similar to hymn tunes oftentimes, um, but they have some har harmonic and voice leading uh, traits that are pretty distinctive. Um, so it, it's uh, harmonically a little bit more similar to even like early Renaissance or medieval choral music, uh, which is kind of an interesting relationship to me. So both in terms of the singing style and in terms of its harmonic uh, peculiarities, it's, it's been of interest to me for some time. Does that answer your question? <laughs> I think yeah. that was the, the best explanation we've ever gotten on this topic. Oh, good. So, yeah, <laughs> thank Bye. you. <laughs> You're hired. Um, so I wanted to go back a, a little bit to that conversation about uh, folk music. We've been uh, talking a lot, especially recently, about you know diversity and appropriation versus appreciation and so on. So when you, for example, say, I, I, I don't know, again, I will preface this, that I, I don't know everything about your family tree or your lineage and whether you are influenced by Bulgarian music from afar or from up close. Um, but uh, let's say that, um, you know, how, how do you approach um, these fascinations that you develop for folk music that perhaps does not belong to your family, <laughs> um, but you make sure that you um, avoid all ways of, of stealing, offending, and everything else that none of us want to do when we appreciate this music. Yeah, the, that's the thing with, um, 
with folk music is what I would never want to do is I would never want to create the impression that I was purporting to actually be a member of that culture or actually have the goal of sounding like it came like it, it was a, originally a, a Bulgarian piece of music or anything like that. Um, with with that music, I, I I don't believe I've ever I've ever come close to that. I think it's a much more abstract um, influence that I've I've drawn from that music. Um, I I don't think there's any piece of music in my repertoire where you could point to it and say that is specifically from this piece of Bulgarian music or um, that sounds like it's trying to sound like it was written by a Bulgarian composer. Um, so I think that um, I, you know I I tend to um, I tend to be very analytical and abstract in the way that I, I think about how I conceive my music, even if it's um, not a, a super, uh, even if it's not a piece that comes off as super intellectual um, or anything like that. Um, I tend to think about it in a pretty analytical way. So I, I hope that um, that is abstracted enough that it's not purporting to be um, a, a member of that particular culture. Um, with shape note music, um, I suppose I, I have done music that is more obviously influenced by that. Um, but again, um, uh, I, I don't, I haven't like written a shape note tune, but I've written arrangements that are clearly intended to be concert works. So I suppose that it's clear that the intention is a little bit different. Um, and I think that shape note music is a little bit closer to what I consider my cultural heritage might be. So I have a little bit closer of an insight to that music than I might to music from further afield. Um, these these are these are always like complex and interesting issues to think about, and I I just hope that I I, I would never want to portray my music as something that it's not. So that's that's where I come from on that. Yeah, it seems like it seems like such a big part of this discussion is always honesty, and we talked a, a few weeks ago. I can't. I think it was Carly maybe reported on it. There was some like middle school band composer, white male composer that wrote some cherry blossom inspired piece and stuck some terrible corny female Asian pen name on it to sell more copies. It's like, don't, don't do that. Yeah, but it's okay to no. be, you know, like I, I give the example, we have a, a percussion composer named Bob Becker that has extensively studied Indian music with Indian musicians and certainly paid his dues. And a lot of his music is Indian influenced and he doesn't try and sell it as authentic, but he definitely also doesn't hide the fact that he's, you know, studied with these musicians. And I think that's fine in that case. So. To be fair, his real name was like Jim Larry or Bob Jim or something terrible. <laughs> like you should, you should probably- Larry should Clark, Larry Clark. That it, right, right. Like you probably should just change your name anyway. Larry <laughs> Bird or something. It was something that you wouldn't want to keep. No, right, yeah, but, it, sorry, go ahead. Oh no! It's, and like I, um, I, I have studied uh, Sacred Heart music uh, fairly seriously. I mean, you can tell that I'm a huge nerd about it. So I hope that I've, I hope that I've done my research when I sit down and write a piece that that is influenced by that pretty obviously. So yeah, all about honesty. <laughs> of course, and and um, I think the the 
situation that most uh, made me think was that one when we talked about a room full of teeth uh, performing a piece that had throat singing in it. And then this throat singer um, coming out and saying that that's not okay. And that not, and then she asked, okay, what are you going to do about it? And they said, okay, well, we'll make sure that we include it in our program notes and so on. And her response again was something like, so you're going to give an anthropological uh, lecture, mini lecture at the beginning of everything? No, you need to pay money um, to say charities or societies, you know, that this money needs to go back into the community where this music came out of, where your inspiration came out of. So I think that was a, a very specific uh, kind of um, in instance where Caroline Shaw, I think was quite, um, well, she faced some backlash for doing that. And they even won an award for that piece. So there was certainly a lot of media bubble about it. We actually, we, a long time ago, we had Michael Spiro on the podcast and, and he talked about when you yeah, do this like African music with your, you know, percussion group, he's like, it's, it's important to, to bring the actual African guy in. And if your university doesn't have money to do that, you dip into your own pockets to do it. And he was very adamant about that. Um, I can't say that I've gotten myself into a situation where uh, that has come up, but I could certainly see the validity behind that argument. Sort of like how on the podcast we try to edit out. If anything comes across Serbian, we try to edit it out every time. There's just a huge sticker over my face, and anytime I talk, it's like meow, 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 meow. Right. <laughs> the, the teacher from Charlie from Charlie Brown that trombone sound. Yeah, yeah, we wouldn't want to misrepresent a country. <laughs> well, uh, if we can uh, move away from from Serbian news for a minute, I actually have a, a little topic I'd like to to share today. Um, and when I was reading Sarah's website, I noticed that she, when she was at the University of Aberdeen, she developed a course on the music of George Crumb. And as I admitted before we started recording, I'm like, I, George Crumb is one of a few composers that I feel like ashamed at how, how little I really know about. So I was happy to dig into George Crumb. And I found uh, there's a little NPR sort of interview slash podcast almost thing. It's about eight minutes called Composer Crumb Enjoys a Revival uh, from NPR's All Things Considered. Uh, you can check that out. But just a little bit of background about him and a little about, a bit about his music. He was born in Charleston, West Virginia on October 24th, 1929. And we were recording this on October 18th, which means that in just a few days on Saturday, October 24th, it will be Crumb's 91st birthday. So happy early birthday, George Crumb, or late birthday if you're listening to this when it's released. Uh, George Crumb began to compose at an early age. He went on to study at Interlochen, Mason College of Music and Fine Arts, University of Illinois, and University of Michigan. He also studied at the, pardon my bad German pronunciation, Hochschule for Music in Berlin as a Fulbright Fellow. He taught at the University of Colorado and University of Pennsylvania. He's won several significant prizes, including the 1968 Pulitzer Prize for his orchestral work, Echoes of Time and the River, and a Grammy Award in 2000 for the best contemporary composition for his star child for orchestra and voices. He's known as much for his penmanship as he is for his music. He has these fascinating, beautiful, very intricate, all hand-drawn scores. Um, and this is my little opinion on what I know. I would say much like Ives, his music is absolutely steeped in Americana, but also uniquely his own. It's so cool when we have so many 
wonderful, amazing European contemporary composers. Ligeti certainly comes to mind to actually have an American hero. And when you hear him, he has just this pleasant West Virginia charm to his voice. Uh, he once stated that he believed young composers do their best work. Um, but this uh, NPR thing from 2002 said that the 73-year-old musician has had two premieres this fall with a third plan for next spring, and that was in 2002, and he is still alive and kicking and composing today in 2020. So I think that's pretty fascinating. Uh, in his music, he explores unusual timbres quite a bit, alternative forms of notation and extended techniques. The guitarist David Starobin said about his music with these extended techniques, he says, the thing that separates George from many of them is that he's able to integrate all those extra sounds that instrumentalists can do into the musical context without it sounding gimmicky. That to me is one of his greatest gifts. Some of his most renowned works include his piece, Ancient Voices of Children, Black Angels, and Macrocosmos Three: Music for a Summer Evening. Uh, we'll talk more about that last piece in particular in a moment here. Uh, Black Angels was his reaction to the Vietnam War. A recording of this piece by the New York String Quartet was listened, excuse me, was listed by David Bowie as one of his top 25 favorite records. The violinist David Harrington heard a radio broadcast of this piece and he was so inspired that it actually led to the creation of the Kronos Quartet, which specializes in new music. And the first section called Trinity One, Night of the Electric Insects is featured on the soundtrack of The Exorcist and the electric insects are the helicopters in Vietnam. Uh, his piece Macrocosmos 3, which is subtitled Music for a Summer Evening, is scored for two pianos and two percussionists playing this massive array of conventional and unconventional instruments. A few of the crumb sounds in this piece include crotales being played on timpani, slide whistle, whistling, which is in unison with vibraphone. Uh, it's a very eerie sound, bowed vibraphone, and the piano, one of the, I think it's both pianists actually, I think, play Mbira, uh, the African thumb piano. And Casey has performed that week that work before with his colleague Eric, and I'm sure Casey will tell us more about that experience in a bit. And then one other piece I wanted to mention is his Madrigals Book One for soprano, vibraphone, and double bass. This has a lot of special effects on the vibraphone, and this was actually partially responsible for inspiring Christopher Dean's Morning Dove Sonnet. Mr. Dean actually served as a sort of percussion consultant for George Crumb for many years, and Crumb called Dean the Paganini of the vibraphone after hearing him perform his Morning Dove Sonnet, so a little cool connection to the percussion world there. Um, so I guess we'll start with uh, Sarah, since you taught this class, what did I miss? What did I screw up? <laughs> Uh, I I don't believe you screwed up anything. Um, I appreciate yes. what I I appreciate what you said about um, uh, how much Americana is present in Crumb's work, but at the same time use a very original voice, much in the manner of Ives. Um, I I think that kind of that does a lot to sum up why I decided to teach the course. Um, I was uh, tasked with teaching uh, the composer options course for third and fourth years is what they called it. And basically the students focused on one composer for the entire semester and the whatever faculty member taught it that semester got to choose and got to write the course. And I figured that being in the UK, um, I nobody else was gonna choose George Crumb. And I certainly wanted to choose a living composer but a composer with a large and diverse enough body of work that it would give us plenty to talk about for a semester. So I, I went with Crumb. 
I also added Black Angels to the second year composition listening list and got a lot of very strong reactions to that, both positive and negative. And oh my gosh, I tried to listen to this at three o'clock in the morning and I, it scared the crap out of me. What on earth is this piece? So I figured that strong reactions were, were good and a, a great place to start with planning a course. So um, I really enjoyed exploring both Crumb's work uh, and composers which may have influenced him, such as, as Bartok, as we've mentioned, and uh, Ives as well, um, and sort of giving them some background in American musical history and in American movements of art and thought. Um, with Crumb's work, uh, in terms of the harmonies and, and the pitches that he uses, uh, it's, it's interesting to analyze because uh, a lot of it is, it looks very complicated on the page, especially with uh, him using such extreme ranges of the instruments. There's a lot of ledger lines involved, so it looks very complex. But when you start to actually analyze the music and analyze a few different pieces of his, you start to realize that he, a lot of the ways that he uses his modes of limited transposition is that's the main thing that he's doing and he's actually often doing um, he's doing these things in a very intuitive way. So I felt that it would show the students that uh, just because music looks very complex or maybe has a lot of dissonant sounds in it doesn't necessarily mean that it is inaccessible or that we or that it's or that we can't figure out what the composer's intentions were. Um, and of course, also, as you said, he used extended techniques and a lot of uh, different sounds uh, out of his, the acoustic instruments that he used, but in a very well integrated way. So yes, it, it does not sound gimmicky at all. Um, and between uh, the musical language and the timbral language that he used, I felt it would be very educational, but very accessible to third and fourth year music students. Yeah, I I just had a couple of thoughts as you're talking that came to mind I wanted to add. One thing I didn't mention is this work Black, Ang Black Angels is uh, it's written for electric string instruments, which is sort of like sort of a rarity. And in my understanding, uh, it's been performed by both like literal like electric violin as well as just amplified instruments. Uh, and there is a, if you go on YouTube, there's like a score follow along uh, example. And like George Crumb is known for using these tiny, tiny little notes. And having played quite a bit of contemporary music myself, I like, I just look at the score and just in awe that the performers are quite frankly, even able to keep it together. I mean, it's, it's extraordinarily difficult looking to me. Um, but then I wanted to add one other thing. I think, uh, I almost hesitate to say this, but a lot of the time when we see composers of extraordinarily complex music, we, we kind of begin to think like, oh, well, you know, maybe he's just throwing stuff on the page and seeing what sticks or, you know, coming up with an idea, but not really understanding what's going on. Uh, but my, one of my colleagues, his name is Andrew Stonerock. He's our saxophone professor here, uh, was a student at University of Colorado and they brought Crum in. Uh, I think it was actually, they did like a little mini Crum festival and he said that like his ears were just incredible and he could pick up, uh, you know, flute uh, in, this, in the second part. I think the, the high E flat was a little bit flat. I mean, he like 
could just pick out every last little detail. It's very clear that he knows exactly what he's doing in his scores. It's not, it's not just some sort of act. Um, but Carly, I think you had something. Yeah, Sarah, I'm wondering what would you consider to be kind of essential listening to understand the scope of Crumb's writing and also maybe fall in love with his music? What, what, what do you recommend? Uh, I recommend starting with uh, The Voice of the Whale, uh, which is his work for uh, cello, flute, and piano. Um, I, I knew a pianist once through a, a, a summer job who told me that the only time she ever cried while performing was performing this piece. Um, the, the piece takes inspiration from whale song, which uh, is, is it's one of these interesting things that we could almost interpret it as a little bit cliched now um, because we're sort of familiar with those sounds and those recordings have been around for a while. But he wrote the piece in the early early 1970s when these recordings were first being made. So he was he was kind of the first composer to really uh, take inspiration from the sounds that whales make, which are quite emotive and vocal sounding. And he, of course, uses extended techniques to great effect, as you might imagine. Uh, and it's, certainly there are, some, there are some more dissonant moments in the piece and some moments which uh, if you're not uh, already really into uh, contemporary um, chamber music, might take you a little, it might take you aback a little bit. But at the same time, uh, so much of it is is quite beautiful and accessible, especially towards the end of the piece. Uh, it's like one of the most beautiful cello solos ever. So that's that's a great place to get started, both in terms of the sounds of the music and in terms of where he is taking on board his ideas from, because uh, he's, he's certainly very focused on his environment and some of these social and environmental issues in, in his work. Also, Black Angels, we've already mentioned a couple of times, but that is just quite a, is quite a striking work any way you want to look at it. Um, and one of the most uh, uh, I think he makes a really wide use of, he's got a lot of diverse different sounds in that piece also. So that helps keep it engaging. Um, he also has works, um, he has Amer um, groups of pieces called American Songbooks uh, where he uh, does these really quirky uh, very crumb-esque arrangements of American folk tunes for vocalists and a few instruments that uh, just go to show uh, his more Americana influences, I suppose. Um, there are a lot of ways in which uh, the instruments of Appalachia and the sounds that they produce can be heard. You can hear echoes of them in his work. I, I noticed some of his works actually have banjo in them, which is yeah, rare. banjo. <laughs> um, also, I mean, I I certainly hear a lot of hammer dulcimer in the amount of time that he uses playing inside the piano, uh, and that's certainly an instrument uh, that's very uh, popular in Appalachian music. Um, also, he's spoken at length about how the echoing of the river valleys in Appalachia. Uh, it was a huge influence on his sort of acoustic 
uh, experience of the world and how much that plays into his music. So those are those are three great places to start uh, with George Crumb's work. Now we all have a, a listening list. Now we have homework. Ben, I was thinking about the 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 Crumb works that I like the most, and I think this was our first year in Miami. Ben, do you remember hearing New World Symphony perform Ancient Voices of Children? I don't remember that at all. No, I must no? have missed that. I concert. know it was at New World Center. I feel like you must have been there. I don't know, but I was thinking about that performance and I was thinking like, wow, that was so powerful. I mean, you don't get to hear this music all the time. I mean, I, I was trying to remember too, if they did them, they might've done the madrigals on the same program, which is like incredible. You know, I've heard recordings of that, but it's not, it's not done all that often. You said that was at New World or something? Yeah. You're not confusing it with the New World Symphony. That's by a different guy. Sorry. That took Master's me a second. degree. Like, yeah, yeah, New World Symphony. <laughs> oh, right. That's it. No, I, I, well, I was going to add that, that one, one of my, uh, and I can't, this just like popped into my mind like a minute ago. I had to look it up to, to figure out exactly what it was, but Shi Yi Wu actually performs uh, her own arrangement of his cello sonata on marimba. Um, oh. And I saw her do that at UNT, gosh, probably 2009 ish, something like that. Um, and I, I don't, think it's something she's necessarily performed recently but she's done his cello sonata on marimba i bet that's way cool yeah and it, i remember she did it right next to i think maybe three movements of the c major bach cello suite um so like kind of cool <laughs> but sorry Xenia, i think you had something well, now that it's no longer relevant, but I'm really curious, um, since uh, you spent some time in Aberdeen, Sarah, I would like to know, and you mentioned that people had strong reactions to listening to Crumb's music. I'd like to know, what are your impressions? What's life like over there? What are compositional tendencies, musical tendencies these days? How's it different from the US? Um, it's, it's, that's kind of, a, I, that's a hard question for me to answer with a lot of generalization, just because um, I was over there because I specifically wanted to focus on choral music. So I can I can certainly say uh, I, I can I can give you a better analysis of how choral music, in particular, is different in the U.S. versus the U.K. Um, and of course, they have uh, their own particular traditions over there that stem out of um, Anglican choral music uh, and more recent composers uh, such as uh, Herbert Howells and um, Kenneth Layton and composers that are more influential over there than they are here. And I, I think that's resulted in um, some musical tendencies that, I mean, it's it's hard to generalize about an entire country, but the the harmonies that are maybe more attractive to people over there generally uh, tend to fit in well with what I'm interested in, in my work. So my my choral music played pretty well over there. Uh, that's not to say that people aren't interested in those sounds over here too. It's just it, the the it's just you know as well as we can generalize about the prevailing culture. Um, in terms of instrumental music, uh, that, that's a little bit harder for me to say. Um, I think that some of the differences in the culture there versus here are a resultant from it just being a smaller country. So the, it, it's maybe a little bit more 
they're, they're quite focused on UK composers because, you know, it's, that's, that's their, that's their area, but that's, a, that's by necessity, a smaller group of people. Um, so I don't know, it's, it, it's, the, the culture is different based on the size of the country as much as anything. I don't know if that answers your question or not, but it's, it's hard to, it's hard to generalize about these things. Oh, no, sure. And sorry, I did throw a curveball, but it's always interesting to know. And, and it's interesting to know. And, and I feel like in some countries, people really do emphasize a lot of playing of their own composers. And in others, they're much more open to playing a lot of diverse composers, and they're not particularly attached to their own, you know, musical heritage as much. So I was, I was curious to know what's going on in Aberdeen, but that's cool. Yeah, they they are they are quite attached to their their own heritage, um, but I mean, so are people in the United States, I suppose. Um, but I guess we, I guess we tend to still play a lot of continental European composers, and there are a lot of composers that are quite well known in the UK that we might not necessarily know about so well over here. Sure. Who's that Elgar guy? Never heard of him. <laughs> He wrote some cello piece. I don't know. <laughs> well, uh, Jackie to, get to, to get back to Crumb for just a minute, Casey, why don't, why don't you tell us what trouble you're getting us into today with Crumb? Crumb bingo. All right. Look, it's time for Crumb bingo. You each have your Crumb cards. I thought I would. I, I've, I've, you know, acquired a, a small collection of Crumb instruments, and something I think that's so cool that George Crumb does is he gets all these really great colors and sounds out of percussion instruments, some of which are simply combinations of other percussion instruments. So I think a lot of composers who get unique sounds, and I'll say unique because they are literally looking for a one of a, count, a, a kind sound, which if something's one of a kind, another instrumentalist can't go and replicate it unless they have the exact actual instrument. So they'll say, oh yeah, I want a gong here, but they like has to have this exact overtone spectrum and it has to be really, really specific. And they don't know how to say like, yeah, it's got to be this exact specific thing. But uh, Crumb is, is he seems to really, I, I mean, I've, I've seen, you know, his pieces, of course, for years and all these different substitutions and things like that. And when he just says low bell, which I'm going to show you what I used for my low bell once for one of his, I've seen all sorts of different versions. And it's, it's just always great as long as it's something that <laughs> fits into that sound. So I thought I would just take you all on a quick tour of just some of those crumb colors for percussion. And I know this will be repetitive for a lot of our listeners, but I think for a lot of our other listeners, it, it'll be really uh, uh, probably some new territory. And even and if, if I could, yeah. I was gonna say, if, if I could just show everyone what exactly Casey did, uh, I'll share my screen for a second. Sure. He actually made a crumb <laughs> bingo board. <laughs> well, have it, so. that, I, I made a unique bingo board. Yeah, everyone, everyone, everyone has one. So this is mine. This is, uh, if you're watching on Look YouTube. Look at my last name. See how Casey butchered Ksenia's name. <laughs> and um, yeah, Sarah's no got one and Carly's got one. So, so we're all gonna play along and uh, this should be a Patreon bonus. If you sign up to be a Patreon, you get a free Chrome Bingo board. <laughs> you get but be anyway, sorry, Casey, go go ahead. Oh, good. Well, I was going to say, for those of you who already know this, you get to watch this bingo game. It's going to be awesome. So that's, you know, you also have a reason to keep listening. So anyway, I'm going to go in no particular order. The spots that has Crumb's pictures in y'all's slots 
uh, it's a wild card, so you can go through those. So we'll probably have bingo like really, really, really soon. Free spaces. Does that make sense, Ksenia? Yeah. Wild card. Sorry, I've I've never played bingo. I actually don't know how this works. Oh my god. I'm wow. sorry. I come from a small country. Okay. <laughs> Stop being condescending. I can't tell if Ksenia's joking or not. <laughs> joking. No, I've actually never played bingo. I have okay. no idea. What am I supposed to do? Yeah, you want to get four in a row. So like if if um, if the first sound I play, like if you heard it, you're going to check off or mark. It's going to be hard to do this digitally. You should probably like put a piece of gum on the screen so you can mark off on your bingo card where you are or like maybe a not permanent marker. So you want to get like a row uh, uh, horizontally or vertically or diagonally. Yeah. So as as you hear the sounds, you you, you mark them off. And also, I'm not going to make you all guess you... the sounds or anything. They're they're pretty straightforward. And plus, you can see me here doing them. So, so yeah, the... we have we have Catali's on timpani twice. Are you going to do that sound twice, or is that oh like a, like... crap? Ah, that's a typo. You can have it twice. Sweet. Uh oh. Yeah. You, your your card has a bonus in it. It's rigged. But hold on. Before we start, Ksenia, the most important part is when you get the row or four in a row in the line, whatever, oh. you have to yell bingo. Really loud. Right. Okay. Then and the what is a wild card? What is my what am I supposed to free do space. with free space? Free space. So oh, yeah. oh, so that doesn't matter. Okay, that's just yeah. so we're double cool. educational today teaching about crumb and bingo. <laughs> Thank you. I know, I know. Yeah. All right, let's do this. <laughs> so yeah, if it has crumb's face in it, you already have won that spot. Okay. So I bet it'll go kind of fast. So yeah, what, one thing, and I'm not going to go into a long like history of all these instruments, A, because I don't know, and B, because I think I, I haven't uh, prepared that at all. But a sistrum, we had to have sistrum in music for a summer evening. So if you are have sistrum on your page, you can mark it, which you all do. This is this is uh, one, one of two styles of sistrum. It's basically like loop with janky metal in it. And this is kind of modern sistrum, which uh, from what I can tell is after the, like the ancient Greek sistrum. And another real common one is the Egyptian sistrum, which is funny. This one has like a little Egyptian cat on it, although it's not exactly the Egyptian style. The Egyptian ones have metal janky pointy pieces going out to the side and they sound like really, really earthy and gritty. But these are basically just tambourine jingles with some beads in between so it sounds extra janky and supposedly crumb he wanted the symbology of these instruments as well so if you had a choice like oh i'll just use like a janky tambourine like well it would help if it wouldn't look like a tambourine though that that might be the right sound but the 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 symbology of these was uh, apparently important to him another one less symbolic this is of course just a slide whistle and he even specifies that he wants the cheap plastic slide whistle. All right. And my buddy Eric Genevin and I in music for a summer evening, you, you get to play into the piano, open lid piano, so that you get the resonance of the strings and the soundboard. And you have to play these unison thirds and fifths and fourths. And yeah, actually specific pitches, yeah. Specific pitches. So look what we did. We we put these, oh crap, wrong camera. We put little uh, pitches on here along with a little marker so that we could try to play it. Casey, can you say that again? We can't hear you. You're away from your microphone. Oh, you couldn't hear like out of my armpit? <laughs> we, we put the specific pitches, like we put a gauge on the slide whistle so we could try to play it like as in tune as possible. It was still way too hard for me. Um, so you can check off that one. Prayer stones. 
All right, so you hold one in your hand like so, and you cup it, and you change the pitch like that. I think he says Tibetan prayer stones, but like, dude, where do you find those? How do you know they're from Tibet, so-and-so? But I figured out, okay, they are stones, and a great substitute is just river rocks, like decorative river rocks from the, uh, like from Lowe's. Yeah, that's like a really, really good substitute. And they're really hard and they're really smooth. And you just find the right shape and they sound they sound really great. Uh, let's see, Tibet another unusual. Is at Lowe's. That's, that's new geography for you people. That's Cangelosi, DMA. Huh? Oh no, DMA, sorry, whoops. Oh, you screwed that up, that's real bad. And this is a recorder, so if you have that. All right, here we go. <laughs> it's really really bad wow. now um let's see uh temple bells so a lot of the singing bowls that we use commonly in percussion playing they're really thin so that they sing easy but something they don't do is they don't hit very well they're so thin that if you hit them too hard, they really, the, the timbre changes, they'll shake, they'll buzz. You can damage them really easy. But if you look for little singing bowls that are thicker and they tend to be smaller, you can hit, the, you can hit them like way hard and you won't damage them. Um, so, uh, you know, a, a lot of composers, they want a certain sound, but they don't take into consideration, yeah, yeah that sound is really lovely, but not at fortissimo. In fact, it doesn't work at Fortissimo. So you might have to change your instrument a little bit. I mentioned earlier a low bell. So I used a big singing bowl for low bell. I thought that was cool. Another really good alternative for low bell is just a really focused gong. Something called a festival gong, I think is really good. That's this one, this thick, flat gong. Especially since he does often not indicate a specific pitch. If he indicates a specific pitch, well, you might be stuck with a, you know, a tubular bell or something. Uh, let's see, moving on. Let's see, he's got claves. I think it's one of the, the madrigal songs or something. It's uh, claves on bass drum. Again, this is another example of one of those instances where he wants a new sound, but he's not making you like destroy an instrument or modify an instrument in some really, really tricky way. But it's simply place the claves on the bass drum. I just grabbed a tom-tom because I'm already- I just got bingo. You got bingo? Ben, you win a prize. What's the prize? I don't know. He doesn't really win a prize. $50 to Casey's website. I, th I think I got bingo a bit ago, but I didn't realize it at first. You got to call it. You got to call it. I know. Because oh, um, I, ha I had the recorder. Um, and then I had Chrome's face. Um, and then Sistrum. And the pitched slide whistle. I think that gave me bingo. I, yeah, I, I did. I, I, I didn't realize it at first and I didn't want to interrupt you because you're a nice person unlike Ben. <laughs> <laughs>
Well, you had you got so many instruments over there. I want to let you get through some of them. I'm worn out over here already. Yeah, and I I couldn't even fill the bingo card. There could be so many more. Well, let's see if anybody gets double bingo, and let's see if uh, Carly and Ksenia also get get bingo. I wanted to hear Cortales on timpani though. Yeah, the the oh that we should be done. You mean? <laughs> I think it's going pretty good so far. There you go. There you these, go. That's so good. far, I've nailed all these sounds. You, you going. have. You're going. Yeah, go Is it going? Time okay, in. okay. So we just did Crotales. I did it on the Tom Tom because I'm lazy and didn't want to fit a bass drum in here. Clavis, not Crotales. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He also does Imbira on bass drum, which is really cool because you kind of. When I did it, I leaned my forearms and and Imbira on the bass drum, and I got like a nice thump. Like so, every time you hit it, you get this extra extra thump. We got two bingos. Bingo! We got two bingos. Oh, this is cool. See, this is going great. Okay, we'll keep going. It's, it's now a competition for second bingo, but here's a little oh, of Oh, I have two! Again, I didn't bring a bass drum in, but it sounds fine on timpani. You get a sense. You get a sense of just how, like, into the drum Imbira can get. And he never asked for this, but you can't help but do this. Can you guys hear some bending? Cool, cool, cool. And I just, yeah, he doesn't ask for that in anything I've played, but it's just to illustrate how, how deep it does go into the drum. So that's Imbira on timpani. And then also in music for summer evening is Cretales on timp. This is fun. I think we all know what this, what this, what this sounds like. And also we got suspended cymbal on timpano. I was going to mention Jennifer Higdon took, stole the Cretale thing for her percussion concerto, and Michael Doherty uses the cymbal thing in his timpani concerto. I, I I haven't studied this sort of thing, but I have a sense that a lot of people picked up a lot of this crumb stuff over the years. Um, if you look at the dates and like who done it first, I, I, I would guess a lot of it goes right back to crumb. But that's just a guess. Uh, moving on to some wind chimes, we got bamboo wind chimes. All right, I think it's a common instrument. And what I was going to say is that I think the way to acquire these instruments is buy the cheap Steve Weiss owl wind chimes, which sound terrible. There's just not enough of them, but they cost something like $4.95. So just buy 10 of them. Or even just buy like three of them. Not 10. Not 10, Ben. <laughs> not 10, Ksenia. Why so mean to me, Ksenia? Just buy a few of them. And it's way, way cheap, but they sound good when there's just a lot of them. Yeah, something you have to be careful about and there's there's moments where Crumb asks you to play these instruments real aggressively. So if you have like too nice of uh, instruments, it's easy to break them. And I think that's a good example in the nicest wind chimes, I think that are out there, glass wind chimes, excuse me, are Brian Nosny's custom wind chimes. So. Mm -hmm. 
Those are Brian Nosny's glass chimes. They're really nice. They sound great, but I think it's scary to be aggressive with them. So you can also just go on Amazon and buy like cheap, 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 artsy looking glass wind chimes. And I think they sound really good too. Like, uh, like these things. And I've got a few of them broke on here, but you can really just slam them. The glass is thick. And again, if you buy two sets, you can really, yeah, get a lot more action out of them. And last thing, again, this is a common sound, but I think, again, just to kind of put you into Crumb's world a little bit, is Bode Gong. And I think that's it. No double bingo. We, I all think we all just bingos. filled our boards. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, congratulations. You all get a prize. I was going to say, you know, I, I lived in West Virginia for six years. I, I taught at a little university out there and it was, it was like an hour and a half from Charleston, which is like the big city. That's the capital. And that's not a big city at all. I think there's pretty much anywhere in West Virginia. I mean, you can get the, the, the clearest nights I've ever seen were growing up in Utah, like, uh, you know, like 15 minutes outside of the small city and then just in West Virginia. So I, I feel like George Crumb to me, this is just personal opinion. He's the, the closest composer to like, you know, their, their, their substance is their connection to nature. Like there's so much symbology and ritual and, and stars. And I mean, he, he, he talks about that so much and it's sort of like John Luther Adams like talking about like the great outdoors and just like the massiveness expanse of the outside. I feel like George Crumb is kind of uh, the only other composer I've gotten that, that sense from without him like outwardly coming out and like telling you, Hey, that's what this is about. I guess John Luther Adams does come right out and tell you that that's what it's about. But I thought that about George Crumb and I can really understand why, like having lived there for, for six years, like why you might, uh, why you might think that I think I've seen more shooting stars in West Virginia than anywhere else. That's the only thing I agree with you on Casey Kendralosi. <laughs> Is that I saw more stars in West Virginia? <laughs> yes. That's that's it. Oh, you I just nailed me. Way to go. Oh man, I just I, I just got owned. Oh man, I have a I have a really funny quick anecdote to say about that, but uh, I just I just wanted to mention also one thing that's so interesting to me about George Crumb is so much of his music is just like dark, dark. I mean, like you know, out there stuff. But it's been like many people have commented that he's just a really pleasant guy. And like interviews, like he doesn't seem like this like dark, dark recluse or anything like that. But no, I, if, I, if I can just sorry to like waste everyone's time with just a quick funny story. But I teach a music appreciation class and uh, we use the definition for music that we use in the class is organized sounds and silences. And the final exam, first question. We often discuss the definition of music in this class as organized si sounds and silences. Do you agree or disagree? And I had a student write one. Disagree. I agree. We discuss discuss this basically every class. That's that wasn't <laughs> that wasn't the question. <laughs> but anyway, to the get only reason the only reason I don't like that definition because I did the same thing and it's it just it it doesn't account for talking like talking fits that de definition. Well, John Cage would probably say that's music. Right. Yeah. That's what I was thinking about living room music. Yeah. yeah. Story. Seriously. 
Angelism. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's a, it's a broad thing, and I, I don't state it as a fact. I state it as our working definition for this class, and you can agree or disagree. But anyway, to yeah. to close up here, to get back to Sarah, Sarah, we had one more Facebook question from Hal Rosenfeld, and he says, "Do you have any tips or tactics for overcoming writer's block or similar scenarios?" Um, I think that the that's that's always a tough question, just because. Um, Overcoming writer's block uh, and over, it, which is often um, sort of in tandem with overcoming self-doubt and sort of excessively self-critical thoughts. Um, I think that that is something that we all kind of have to find our own way through it. Um, my ways that I tend to think about uh, getting through it when I'm not feeling so creative or not feeling so great. Um, I, I can sort of think my way through it in ways that work for me, but that might not necessarily be the same for everybody else. Um, I think for myself though, what has been absolutely paramount to getting myself into a mental place where I can uh, sort of avoid some of those feelings before they really take hold or, or sort of head them off at the pass um, is just being honest with myself. Uh, and that's, that's how I tend to think about it. Um, when I'm honest with myself about the kind of music that I wanna write and whether or not I'm truly, if I am keeping myself in check and making sure that I am truly writing the music that I genuinely wanna be writing, and not what I feel like, um, you know, somebody else, whether that's, you know, people at large, whether that's particular teachers, particular professional contacts, like if uh, I have to write the music that I want to be writing and not thinking of it in terms of what other people think I should be writing. If I keep myself in that headspace, then that helps me head off some of those uh, some of those thoughts before they really take a hold in my mind. Um, so that's 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 thing number one. That's that's priority number one is just being being honest with yourself and keeping yourself in a good mental place that way. Um, number number two is a little bit more uh, technical or specific, but I I tend to have a pretty particular process that I go through when I write music. Um, and I, I really tend to outline my harmonies first as I, as I start a piece. And that again, that's not something that is gonna work for everyone. Uh, it, it's not, I'm not advocating that everybody absolutely has to start that way, but I have found that it works for me. And if I'm happy with the, the harmonic structure and the harmonic sounds that I've outlined for myself at the outset, then my process tends to go a little bit more smoothly. So um, honesty and finding a process that works for you uh, can help keep some of those feelings at bay in my experience. Very cool. Well, hey, speaking of smart composers and methodical composers, tell us something funny about Eric Genevin. Tell us something he wouldn't want us to know. Oh, um, gosh, I don't know. Uh, he, I mean, he was, he was a pretty awesome TA. Um, we, uh, my sort of cohort of composer, composer friends in the class of 2013 at USC, we had him as a teaching assistant 
for uh, both theory and ear training and then orchestration as well in sophomore years. So he was quite instrumental to helping us with some of our toughest classes uh, in our second year in particular, which was one of the most intense years of that particular degree. So uh, he, was, he was a great person to have around. Um, I can't really think of anything that, that you know, he, he's pretty, pretty stand up, awesome guy. I remember yeah. that, I know, uh, I remember yeah. that uh, he let us swim in the pool in his apartment complex once. Um, hmm. But, you know, that, that's probably the most exciting thing I can think of. <laughs> he's, he's, that, been, that, he's been that pretty... helping us with orchestration. <laughs> He's been pretty instrumental to my happiness here as well. So yeah, that backfired, but okay. Well, anyway, hi, Eric. <laughs> yeah. No dark secrets, it sounds like. Dang well, it. Sarah. Not, not that I know of. <laughs> Sarah, thank you so much for your time. It's been such a pleasure getting to know you a little bit more. And we will see everyone on episode 259. Thank you. Thank you Thanks, for having Sarah. me. It was nice to meet all of you. Nice to meet you too.